Good evening. The Irish Republican Army's murderous violence has reached a new height this week. Fourteen bombs have gone off in London in recent months. The Irish Republican Army had warned that their renewed bombing campaign in Northern Ireland would be taken to the British mainland during the election campaign which began yesterday. Five large hotels hit by bombs planted by the Irish Republican Army and police expect more. As the 1970s stretched on, so did the IRA's bombing campaign, which now focused on targets in Britain. But despite making headlines with increasingly brutal attacks, the IRA was no closer to an outright win against the British Army. Instead, they settled in for a long war. The leadership sat down to review the situation, to see where they could steer the movement, since there was no obvious political outcome on the horizon. Tommy McKearney is a historian and was a young IRA volunteer at the time. One of the observations was that there, there needed to be a wider connection between the provisional IRA and the wider population to involve the population in the broader structure, not necessarily in armed conflict, but in social agitation and, and political work. And the idea, I think, has been sometimes described as broadening the battlefield, but it was effectively said that we had too many spectators but there's an old, if you like, cliche played to the IRA for many years that people in Ireland would give the IRA practically anything in terms of food, shelter, finance, but never give them a vote. To win the conflict meant expanding the terrain of struggle. That lesson was also becoming clear in the United States. By the late 70s, militant Irish Republicans who were associated with the Irish Northern Aid Committee were on the back foot. On one front, they were bogged down by government surveillance and lawsuits that attacked their financial status. But they were also being outpaced by constitutional nationalists, people who argued for a united Ireland through democratic and peaceful means. Respectability was firmly on the side of Irish-American politicians like Ted Kennedy and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who supported that approach, not Irish Northern Aid. the way forward wouldn't be lit by the lace curtain Irish, or by bureaucrats calculating behind closed doors. It wouldn't even come from the top ranks of the IRA. Instead, an opening would come from a group of shaggy men who were reading Che and Mao, serving out their prison sentences at a former Royal Air Force station in Long Kesh. With nothing but their own bodies, they'd change the trajectory of the struggle in Northern Ireland and the United States. Things are getting tense in Northern Ireland again, and one reason is Bobby Sands, an Irish Republican Army activist. He is serving a 14-year prison sentence. Members of the Irish Parliament are demanding a meeting with Prime Minister Thatcher to discuss his case. You're listening to Foreign Agent, and my name is Nate Levy. This is Episode 5. The men in Long Cash went on hunger strike not once, but twice, and it captured the attention and sympathy of the world. In this episode, we'll examine how the reverberations from these prison protests shifted the political terrain in Northern Ireland and the U.S. They opened up the possibility for real electoral power for Sinn Féin. But for some in the IRA and NORAID, this looked like another sellout, and fractures began to appear. Former comrades turned on each other and some even became spies for British and American intelligence. But the hunger strike set off a political transformation that would eventually bring the troubles to an end. And it all began with a question. Were IRA prisoners common criminals or not? In 1972, IRA volunteers who had been captured and imprisoned were granted a special status by the British state. This was an acknowledgement that they were not ordinary criminals, that their activity was to be recognized as political or military in some way. The special status meant that in prison they could wear their own clothing, be housed with other IRA volunteers, and receive extra visits from family and friends. But after four years, the UK did an about-face. The Labour government, under Prime Minister Harold Wilson, began to phase out special status, and new IRA prisoners would be common criminals, pure and simple. 
The new arrivals were going to be held in a separate facility that was being built at Long Cache, 10 miles southwest of Belfast. It was originally an Air Force base, and small huts had been set up to hold the first wave of paramilitary prisoners. But this new construction was going to be a permanent, maximum security prison with guard towers and barbed wire. The official name was Her Majesty's Prison Maze, but the new facility was more commonly known as the H-Blocks. It had eight different sections, and each one was built in the shape of the letter H. Prisoners started arriving in 1976, and this phase-out of special status did not go smoothly. The guards enforced the new rules through extreme brutality. Torture was common practice. The state wanted to claim these men were ordinary prisoners, but also granted itself permission to degrade, humiliate, and abuse them through extraordinary violence. In response to the change in status, IRA prisoners began a strategy of refusal. If they couldn't wear their own clothing, they'd wear nothing, or just blankets draped around their shoulders. Then they refused to clean their cells or empty their chamber pots, and all this escalated until they were smearing feces on the walls, making the prison as inhospitable as possible. The protests were organized around a set of demands. They didn't want to have to wear prison uniforms or do prison work. They wanted the right of free association with other prisoners and to organize their own educational and recreational facilities. And they wanted the right to one visit, one letter, and one parcel per week. Inside the prison, they faced increasing levels of violence from the guards. While outside, the IRA leadership were somewhat ambivalent about the prison struggle because they didn't have total control of it. The volunteers behind bars were able to get messages in and out, but in a real sense, they were operating on their own. They often made their own decisions, divorced from the normal IRA power structure. As the campaign dragged on, they did receive support from the nationalist community, but it just didn't create enough pressure. So there was very significant support, but it was the type of support of people marching without impacting. The British government was content, effectively, to allow people in the six counties of Northern Ireland to, to walk the leather off their shoes. The strategy of refusal had to escalate, and there was a logical but grim next step. The refusal to eat. You're listening to Radio Free Erin, and this will be aired on St. Patrick's Day. We're speaking with Brendan Hughes, who is the former OC of the H-Blocks and in Long Kesh. And we've started off the beginning. In March of 2000, Brendan Hughes called in to the New York radio program, Radio Free Erin. Hughes had been the IRA commander who came to the United States in the 1970s to get an early shipment of Armalite rifles. After that, he'd gotten arrested, put in prison, broken out, and arrested again. By 1980, he was the commanding officer in the H-Blocks. And that year, there were back-channel negotiations going on between Margaret Thatcher and the representatives from the Catholic Church in Ireland. But they fell apart. Thatcher wouldn't grant any of the prisoners' demands. And a visitor delivered the news to Brendan. And he asked me, actually, what are you going to do now? And I said, there's no alternative. But hunger strike, we have to. We've nothing left except hunger strike. And I remember, I'll never forget the walk back, the long, long beard, long, long hair, dirty. And walking up the path, and walking up the path into the blocks, there's two wings, and every face was at the window looking to see if I had any had any news for them. And I didn't know what I was going to tell these people. And Bobby Sands was in excel to me, and I told Bobby, "It's up in the air, and we have to organise a hunger strike." How were you able to communicate and organize a hunger strike within the prison? We had uh, a line of communication through the Irish language. Um, at nights, on, at nights we would we'd be able to shut out the windows. Um, the next day, over the next couple of days, I got communications back in from the other blocks, volunteers. I asked for volunteers for a hunger strike. And I think it was 148 volunteers. We decided on six, one from each county. One of those six men was Tommy McKierney. A prisoner's last resort is a hunger strike. It has a long tradition, certainly a century-long tradition in Ireland within Republican circles. And I remember being 
uh, brought into the conversation by the late Brendan Hughes to ask not only just for my opinion, because the decision had effectively been taken, but to ask would I consider volunteering as one of the volunteers to go on hunger strike. And on, in October 1980, we, seven of us from the Republican prisoners, six members of the IRA and one member of the INLA, embarked on a hunger strike. Even from the United States, it was clear that the hunger strike would be a significant escalation. What wasn't clear was how Irish Northern Aid would respond. It had been a decade since the organization was formed, but they'd lost momentum and fundraising was down. If they wanted to really contribute to the H-Bloc campaign, they'd need to rebuild some of that institutional capacity and create new organizational structures that they hadn't had before. Martin Galvin was an attorney for the New York City Department of Sanitation, and he joined Norid in the 1970s. He was trying to turn the press operation into a more modern entity. We would organize demonstrations around the country and try and bring as many people as possible, as many much political pressure as we could. News media just started to see us every day because everything had to come through the Irish Northern Aid office. There would be the Republican Press Center, the statements from the prisoners. They would go through the Belfast Press Center. That would come out to us, to me, through the Irish Northern Aid office. I used Telex at that time. I would get them out. We would go down. We had a demonstration every day during that period, five to seven on weekdays, three to five on weekends. And the news media would then, they'd come to the Northern Aid office in the morning sometimes to get the latest. After years of declining interest, they'd found something that captured the public's imagination. There were thousands and thousands of people on Third Avenue. This is Bridget Farrell, an Irish-American activist who worked with Norad and Martin Galvin. It was an amazing time for, for the turnout of people. Uh, singers would come, people, people uh, you know, who sang rebel songs at different bars. We would typically uh, swap the microphone on the back of the flatbed truck. I would be leading a chant, and for hours on end, and uh, then Martin would come along and make a, um, make a statement. It was a busy, busy time. I can't even imagine how we had time for everything that people did. I can't imagine how the hours and the Saturdays. I, I spent many years on the demonstration lines on a Saturday. This work and dedication were paying off. The British had taken notice. If they could wipe out American support, the American political support that we had, the American funds for the families of political prisoners, the British thought that that could really work. America was going to be a crucial battlefield. Brendan Hughes could also see that America had a role to play. He wrote a letter from his prison cell that was published in Norate's newspaper. It was an appeal for support, but he made clear America's place in the struggle. He called it, quote, England's weak spot. Irish Americans had been called to act, and they turned out in force. But by mid-December, the hunger strike was over. This is how NBC reported the news. One of the most dramatic anti-British demonstrations in the history of Ireland ended tonight when seven Irish nationalists called off a 53-day hunger strike. They were demanding that they be recognized as political prisoners, but the British government said no. And in the end, the British government won, if there is any such thing as winning in matters of this kind. The prisoners said that they called off the hunger strike because they received indication that in fact the British were interested in negotiating. Whether it was true or just a ruse, it didn't really matter. They didn't get any of their demands. And they were angry. They felt the British had duped them, and they had to respond. Brendan Hughes himself had been on the hunger strike and, as a condition of joining it, had stepped down from his role as commanding officer in the H-blocks. The man who replaced him was named Bobby Sands. He was a 26-year-old volunteer from the Belfast suburbs. So Bobby was doing the negotiation. I was still recovering from the hunger strike in the hospital. Bobby sent a communication to me. He said he didn't see any alternative here except another hunger strike. Uh, I fought with Bobby, actually, over this. Uh, I didn't believe that we should go on a second hunger strike. And it was Bobby's decision that a second hunger strike should take place. This time, 10 men joined the hunger strike. They were all in their 20s, and 
Instead of beginning all at once, they staggered when they would start refusing food. This way the pressure would mount as each one approached death. Bobby Sands went first. American news channels like NBC covered each development. Things are getting tense in Northern Ireland again, and one reason is Bobby Sands, an Irish Republican Army activist. He is serving a 14-year prison sentence. Members of the Irish Parliament are demanding a meeting with Prime Minister Thatcher to discuss his case. Just a few days after Sands began refusing food, something happened on the outside that would open up a new front for the Republican movement. On March 5th, a man named Frank McGuire had a heart attack and died unexpectedly. He was an MP in the British Parliament and represented Fermanagh and South Tyrone in Northern Ireland. Bobby Sands was nominated to replace him. The symbolism of an MP elected from the H-blocks would be impossible to ignore. The campaign ran for just a month, but it picked up incredible momentum in both Ireland and the six counties. Tommy McKearney watched the second hunger strike begin while he was still recovering from the first. What emerged was that there was a very significant support base in the Republic that had been clamped down upon for a number of years. This gave a generation of activists in the Republic an opportunity to get out, to get involved in political work, to get organizing, to have an impact, whereas prior to that it had been their, their opportunities had been limited, just acting as if almost like PR for an armed campaign, which had, has limited value. The movement around the H-blocks was one of the biggest and most important social struggles of the 20th century in Ireland. But at the time, senior members of the IRA were actually really concerned about this. What would happen if Sands lost? And how do you keep control of a popular movement as an underground organization? There was another element that feared with the movement being too large, that other voices that could gain momentum and could gain, could gain purchase. There was a great fear that elements from the, the left taking purchase of, of the, this upsurge in popular support for prisoners, that uh, slightly more pedantic provisional spokespersons could find themselves playing second fiddle to these other brilliant orators. There, there were traditional militarists who were afraid that the orators would run away with the movement that they had inspired. Despite their fears, the force of the movement and the depth of the popular support created a rupture and a victory. Bobby Sands, a convict on a hunger strike in a prison in Northern Ireland today, was elected to the British Parliament. Sands is a member of the Irish Republican Army and was sent to prison after a gun battle with police. The NBC Nightly News reported that Sands won 51.2% of the vote. It was an extraordinary political departure, even though at the time it might have seemed like it was merely symbolic, since Sands couldn't actually take his seat. But it initiated a chain of events that would lead first to a change of direction for the IRA, and then to a ceasefire, and then to a peace agreement and the absorption of Sinn Féin into mainstream politics in Northern Ireland. It's important to say here that Bobby Sands did not run as a Sinn Féin candidate. He was registered under the anti-H-Block party. This was a more expansive label that could draw in support from beyond the old nationalist base but it was within the anti-H-Bloc movement that Sinn Féin was first able to carve out a space within mainstream politics. Sands' election showed that there was new political terrain that the struggle could move into, electoral politics. In the right circumstances, people would give the IRA their vote, at least for a symbolic victory. But maybe they could be convinced to back the provost for real electoral power as well. And what would it mean for the men who were still on hunger strike? As the glow from election night faded, NBC and other major American news stations began reporting almost daily updates. He's been on a hunger strike for the last 51 days, and doctors now say he is within five or six days of death. Sands hasn't eaten in 56 days now, and it is widely feared that if he dies, his death will spark a civil war. Bobby Sands, the Irish activist who is now in his 60th day of fasting, was said today to be drifting in and out of consciousness. Bobby Sands was reported closer to death today, the 63rd day of his hunger strike in a Northern Ireland prison. Good evening. There was some violence in Northern Ireland today following the death of Bobby Sands, the Irish Republican Army activist. Sands died in the 66th day of a hunger strike, an effort to get the British government to give convicted IRA terrorists the status of political prisoners. His body was born from the prison on a black hearse which wound its way through Catholic neighborhoods in which black flags of mourning were hung from windows.
We had had uh, demonstrations on a daily basis leading up to that. This is Bridget Farrell again. We knew time was running short for him, according to reports. And that night he died. The following morning, I was up early and back on the demonstration line about 6.30 a.m. to clean up the line because people would be there all night, staying online, keeping vigil, wearing the blankets. So I was there online early the next morning to prepare for the press coming by and the interviews and the meetings and the tragedy. Irish Northern Aid had been preparing for this. This is Martin Galvin, who by that time had become the group's publicity director. On the day he was buried, we arranged to go carry a a coffin from the British consulate. More than 10,000 people filled the streets. People came from all over. New York City policemen, they were going to make Bobby Sands a criminal. New York City policemen, some of them, as we passed, you could see them stand at attention. A couple even saluted as a mark of respect. That's how much things had changed. The second hunger striker, Francis Hughes, died a week later. And the third, Raymond McCreesh, died nine days after that. This is Tommy McKierney again. The thing that we have to think in terms of the hunger strikes, not only the emotion that they caused and raised, uh, young men dying over a protracted period of time, other times uh, where people were to die in a, in a shooting or a bombing, it's a traumatic, dr- dreadful incident, but it happens rapidly and it can be almost digested rapidly. But men dying over 50, 60, 70 days It's a protracted agony, not only for the human being dying, but his relatives and the community at large was for nine months. There was this agonizing process one after another, highly emotional, but also it, it, it drew and changed the support base effectively. Two more prisoners were elected to political office from the H blocks. But the deaths also continued. NBC reported each one. In Belfast, IRA hunger striker Kieran Doherty became the eighth to die today from a fast that began at the Mays prison five months ago. Doherty fasted for 73 days. Another Irish Republican Army hunger striker died today. 23-year-old Thomas McElwee became the ninth to die in Belfast's Mays prison since the hunger strikes began. Michael Devine today became the tenth hunger striker to starve himself to death in Northern Ireland. Devine was 27. Good evening. A tragic episode in the long, ongoing struggle between the Irish Republican Army and the British government ended today when the hunger strike at May's prison was called off. Even as the 10th man died, Margaret Thatcher publicly refused to negotiate. She could claim victory, no matter how grim it was. But the public support that the hunger strikers had inspired in the United States threatened to turn that victory into a defeat. Irish Americans who had turned away from the conflict during the 1970s were brought back into the fold by the hunger strikes. This is Dr. Danielle Zack, a professor at City College in New York. So the hunger strikes are an enormous boom for Irish Northern Aid. What they do is break through the narrative that's been shaped by the British government that this is a conflict in which it's sectarian, they're a neutral third party, and that the IRA are merely criminal thugs. What it shows is that these 10 young men are willing to die in a very slow and painful way, gains sympathy in the United States among Irish Americans, second, third generation that had no may not even have a connection, a direct connection to Ireland. The hunger strike shaped, reshaped, or was able to break through a narrative and and provide a different perspective to the conflict. One that gave a deep sense that this was political. Again, a narrative that ordinary Irish Americans would not have been privy to because of the limited coverage and the dominance of British government sources in shaping 
the narrative until that time. And now you have protests and people are covering what's happening in the North directly on the ground. And it's galvanizing. Thousands of Irish Americans were on the streets and they were angry. Their antipathy was squarely aimed at Margaret Thatcher. They burned her in effigy. They picketed the British embassy and they signed up with Irish Northern Aid. Even major news outlets like CBS showed up to cover the pickets. The hunger strikers have sympathizers in this country, and for some of those supporters in New York, despite the end of the strike, today was business as usual. Steve Young has that story. Pro-IRA demonstrators have turned out in New York every day since the start of the hunger strike. And just a few hours after the announcement that the strike was over, several hundred Irish and Irish Americans again gathered before the British consulate in what had become a familiar ritual. Donations and memberships increased dramatically. It was the greatest surge of support in a decade and introduced the organization to younger, third and fourth generation Irish Americans. Now, from the beginning, Irish Northern Aid had been a reactive group. They were always denouncing the latest act of British overreach and aggression in Northern Ireland. And of course, they would offer support for the IRA and defend them to the media. But even when Norid were in the news themselves, like during the 1982 gun running trial, they were always responding to events, not shaping them. But this surge of support demanded that they take a more proactive position. It was time to play a little offense. One of the problems Norad always had was getting representatives of the IRA or Sinn Féin into the United States. They were constantly getting their visa applications denied. So someone in Sinn Féin says to Martin Galvin, let's try the reverse. Why not bring Americans to Northern Ireland? Look, you have all these people. They're very interested in the north of Ireland. Let them see firsthand what life is like under British rule. Let them hear directly, speak directly to people like Jerry Adams and others across the North, and then come back and spread that message across the United States. So that was the basic idea. And so they went. In 1983, Martin Galvin led a tour of 80 people, mostly from Irish Northern Aid and related organizations, to Dublin and then North. They met with nationalist families, were taken around Republican neighborhoods and attended political meetings. Galvin spoke at events and give interviews to the press. In TV footage from the trip, you can see Joe Cahill, the old IRA gun runner, sitting at the front of a tour bus, acting as the beleaguered guide speaking into the intercom. The climax of the trip came when the bus pulled up to a staged roadblock out in the country. IRA volunteers in balaclavas and holding machine guns read out a statement from the Army Council, thanking the group for their visit. The tour participants stayed in the homes of nationalist families. The fact that they were living with a nationalist family, now naturally that family are obviously biased towards one particular ideology, but you're seeing maybe the hardship of the conflict and the conditions that the people of Northern Ireland are living under every day. This is Robert Collins, who's recently published a book on the history of Norad. That had a major impact in terms of wanting them to get interested in the conflict, but also I think wanting them to get interested in maybe a political solution, I think, and maybe that informs later on, is that there's maybe more of an understanding that actually this, this kind of support for the armed struggle you know, is, 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 is negatively affecting these communities very badly. Even if the trips did seed the idea of a political solution, at the time they were denounced by unionists and constitutional nationalists. They thought the group of Americans were buffoons touring a conflict that they knew nothing about. And the British government went even further. Jim Pryor, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, was outraged by the press coverage and he wanted to prevent any repeat performances. So he issued an exclusion order that banned Martin Galvin personally from entering Northern Ireland. But for Galvin, that obstruction was an opportunity. He organized another trip to Ireland the next year, and with the exclusion order in place, he had to be snuck across the border, dodging the police and British military. I was able to sneak in through Derry. It was a very long and cold night. I remember uh, it was raining and really windy, and the guys who were guiding me through turned to me and I'm freezing, I'm miserable. And he said, oh, this is great. And I said, what do you mean? I thought he was joking. He said, oh, those helicopters would never come out on a night like this. On August 12th, there was a big march and rally scheduled in Belfast. 
The idea was to sneak Galvin up onto the stage to make a speech right under the noses of the police. Everybody imagined that I would go to the rally, they would surround it, I would try and sneak away, and chances are I'd be caught, but it would be peaceful, they would just stay on the outside, and that would be the end of it, and uh, I would be deported, and I could, you know, claim it was illegal, and that sort of thing. The rally kicked off, and Galvin slipped through the crowd in disguise, wearing a hat and a couple of jackets. People were jostling and shouting, and then Jerry Adams himself called Galvin up. Welcome! Martin he leapt onto the stage and Adams handed him the mic. An NBC News crew was there. As soon as police spotted the fugitive American, they moved in, intent on arresting him. Before Galvin could say a word to the crowd, he was rushed off stage and away from the rally by leaders of Sinn Féin, the IRA's political front. In pursuit, riot police with clubs charged through the dense crowd, firing volleys of tear gas and plastic bullets. Spectators and reporters were among the injured. One 22-year-old man died after being struck twice by plastic bullets. In the confusion, Martin Galvin managed to get away, reportedly dressed as a policeman. Now there are fears today's clash will encourage more American support for the IRA and trigger more sectarian violence. Now it becomes a major event. This is Robert Collins again. Because you have uh, TV footage of the incident. And you also have kind of a lot of questions being asked about why, why did Galvin appear? Um, why couldn't they just let him speak and then arrest him quietly afterwards? There was a heaven-sent propaganda opportunity. It's a great opportunity for Norad to capitalize on the support. And now they had skin in the game. They were taking on the British and the Northern Irish police themselves on the streets of Belfast. This was Norad at their most militant, but it was actually the beginning of the end of the sort of street politics that the group had been developing since the 1970s. These tours would continue for a few years, but it was a new decade, and the search for something more respectable was just on the horizon. The 1981 hunger strike had demonstrated that there was power in electoral politics, and that people would vote for the IRA under the right circumstances. It also showed that support wasn't limited to militant Irish nationalists in the North. People in the South could be won over as well. In fact, they won support around the world. Here's Tommy McKierney again. So what you're seeing happening is the IRA and its struggle changes from almost being a local issue to an international issue. It was giving the Republican movement, the IRA and its supporters, credibility on a global scale. It was bringing them into the heart of the left. and. Something else that is significant here, it is demonstrating clearly to Sinn Féin and the Republican leadership that there is an alternative, that, that there's a, if you like, a supplement or there's another method of progress, not just armed campaigning. And by late 1981, and this was only months, weeks after the end of the hunger strike in October of 1981, weeks after it added Sinn Féin Ardesh, that's the General Convention of the Sinn Féin Party. One of the prominent spokespersons for the party, their public relations officer, Danny Morrison, used the phrase of armalite and ballot box, indicating that there was, a, uh, there was an understanding of the role for electoralism as well as for an armed campaign. The strategy was to compete in elections and simultaneously keep up the armed campaign. In 1982, just a year after Bobby Sands won his election, Sinn Féin won five seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly. The next year, Gerry Adams won a seat in the British Parliament. Now, they weren't actually taking their seats in office, but traditionalist Republicans were uneasy. They were worried about where this was all headed, and with some reason. The split in 1969 that gave birth to the provisionals was, in some ways, about how or whether to engage in parliamentary politics. Abstaining from government, refusing to take their seats, that was at the heart of their political ideology. But electoral politics has its own gravitational pull. In the United States, Galvin and other young members of Irish Northern Aid were advocating for the organization to take a new direction. They wanted to adopt a political agenda that would involve more lobbying, more media activity, and more politicization. This was a departure from Norad's original mission, 
which was much more narrowly focused on fundraising for Republican prisoners and their families. There was an effort to expand the portfolio of activities that NORAID would have been engaged in. This is Dr. Daniel Zak again. So it wasn't just this grassroots fundraising for the sons and daughters of Irish Republican prisoners. It became about becoming more active in the U.S. electoral arena, having a more effective media strategy, really functioning in a more professionalized and bureaucratic way. And this was deeply upsetting to some of the old guard who had devoted 20 years or so of their life to Irish Northern aid. This move meshed with Sinn Féin's new political engagement in Ireland. Jerry Adams wanted Irish Northern Aid to start developing links with more politicians, minority groups, and humanitarian organizations. Sinn Féin itself was looking for mainstream legitimacy, and it needed its partner in the United States to do the same. You can tell from this NBC News segment from 1983 that they had a long way to go. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's commanding lead in the polls is getting most of the attention in the British elections, which are scheduled for this Thursday. But in Northern Ireland, the embattled province, which also elects members of the British Parliament, a party called Sinn Féin is getting much of the attention for violent reasons. John Cochran reporting from Northern Ireland tonight. Jerry Adams is one of 14 Sinn Féin candidates in Northern Ireland, and none of them talks tougher than Adams. He advocates an assassination campaign against British and foreign businessmen to discourage investment. And yet the poorest Catholic families all have a good word to say about Jerry, a lad from the Catholic ghetto who doesn't kowtow to the British. Despite segments like that, Michael Flannery and older members of NORAID were concerned that Adams and others were drifting away from the armed struggle. The Republican movement seemed like it was shifting under their feet. The hunger strikes had brought in a flood of new members, and now they were getting pressure from Ireland to reorient the organization that they had founded. By 1985, cracks started to appear in both Norad and Sinn Féin. But the dam broke first in Ireland. Sinn Féin was scheduled to hold a conference in November 1986. The stakes for the party and the IRA were high. Jerry Adams and his supporters were proposing a motion that Sinn Féin take their seats in the Irish Parliament for the first time. It was a debate that could spiral out of control, could split the organizations. The average member would be looking to the founders to see which way they would vote. Joe Cahill came out in favor of the new political direction. We've often heard the expression, we can win the war, but lose the peace. Let us bear example here today. Let us bear determination here today in voting for this resolution, ensuring and ensure that those who have fought so valiantly and with such bravery will also win the peace. I think that is the most important thing. This was particularly important for Irish Northern Aid. Cahill had been a foundational member of the Provisionals and was revered by many Irish Americans. Being someone from an sort of early, earlier age uh, carried a, a good deal of weight and authority. This is Ed Maloney, a veteran journalist who's covered the IRA for decades. He was crucial in terms of like presenting himself to the local Norad types that, you know, he's the type of leader, leader that they can approve of, conservative, Catholic, um, no radical he, etc., etc. They were very happy with Joe, you know, ideal person for them. He'd been one of the most familiar faces of the past 15 years, connected in body and spirit to the militancy of the organization. He was the link between the old mythical IRA and the current struggle. But here he was, standing on stage on the side of Jerry Adams, arguing that it was time to let go of a core belief. The next man to speak was Rory O'Brady. He was also a founding member of the Provost, but for him, any talk of taking seats in Leinster House, the building where the Irish Parliament sits, was totally anathema. Where are our revolutionary socialists? How do they expect to build a democratic socialist republic out of Leinster House? 
How can serious social change come out of Leinster House? How can a uh, fundamental change in property relations come out of Leinster House? No way can it do that. What we are asked to do today is to tip the scale that little bit in favour of parliamentary, constitutional and reformist action. And those in Leinster House who have done everything, the firing squads, the prison cells, the internment camps, the hunger strikes, the lot, and weren't able to break this movement, that they can come and say, at last we have them towing the line. It took us 65 years, but they've come in from the cold, they come in from the wilderness, and we have them now. Never! That's what I say to you, never! Despite the dissent and controversy, the motion passed. Sinn Féin would begin taking seats in the Irish government, though not in the British Parliament or in the Northern Ireland Assembly. For Rory O'Brady and many others, this was just too much. They left both the IRA and Sinn Féin and set up new political and military organizations. The groups were called Republican Sinn Féin and the Continuity IRA. Michael Flannery also felt betrayed. To him, the Irish Parliament, the Doyle, was where the Republican movement went to die. And so he resigned from the group that he helped to found. In 86, the reason why I resigned was Norad went with Adams. I didn't make any fuss about the thing. I just, just simply resigned. I said, well, if you in favor of going into the doll, I'd spent a lifetime <laughs> trying to get rid of the doll. I mean, obviously, there were hard feelings with some of the people in Ireland. Martin Galvin stayed on with Irish Northern Aid. I would always talk to them when there's events, and I would always try and see them and stay with them. And Michael Flannery was always a gentleman and wouldn't be the same. And in other words, we wouldn't be at the same events because he would be uh, with a different organization and we wouldn't be traveling together. But at the same time, we would always be friends and I would always respect them and look up to them and uh, be very close to them. So it was very difficult personally, as I said, um, as best as I can explain it. This began a period of turmoil within Irish Northern Aid and Sinn Féin needed to get a grip on the organization. Two young representatives took a six-week tour visiting Norad chapters across the country. They sent over people like Brendan Hughes, the hunger striker, to patch things up. But the new departure had created divisions that just couldn't be mended. Michael Flannery and George Harrison set up a group called the Irish Freedom Committee. And in 1989, some former Norad members started yet another organization called the Friends of Irish Freedom. Both of these new organizations eventually became associated with dissident IRA groups in Ireland. Later in 1989, disaffected Norad members raided the organization's Manhattan headquarters. They took the phones, the fax machine, and all the files. Martin Galvin found a note on his desk calling him a, quote, free state traitor. Irish Northern Aid had been under surveillance for years. But in the 1970s and 80s, it was never clear just how many spies were running around. In 2018, after years of waiting, the FBI released over 2,000 pages of redacted documents relating to their surveillance of Norad. Ed Maloney, the journalist we met earlier, looked through them and did some analysis. He found that in the late 1980s, the FBI had up to six and maybe seven spies in or near Norad in New York. Chicago, and Detroit. Now, these informants were probably mostly lower-level people, and the information they collected wasn't earth-shattering. But keeping an eye on Norad was clearly a priority for the FBI. The declassified documents show that it was a nationwide operation. They pulled in agents from Albany, Detroit, Louisville, and San Francisco. They maintained lists of members with their jobs, addresses, descriptions of their cars, and license plate numbers. Even a small Norad demonstration would result in piles of reports. In 1983, agents investigated a woman from Alabama who had given money to Norad and had taken a trip to Northern Ireland. While she was there, she apparently visited with nationalist activists. 
this was enough to merit an investigation. Agents watched her house in Mobile, and they noted the children's toys in the yard, asked the local police chief about her, and did credit checks. Eventually, they took her and her husband in for questioning, and the investigation seems to have expired without arrests a year later. The FBI had people monitoring Norade at their meetings, their rallies, and even abroad. Over a hundred people went on the 1985 Norade tour of Northern Ireland. One of them was an informant. They were given the code name DE-T1. On the trip, they kept a little diary noting each day's activities, both anodyne and ominous. One day, all that was reported was that the group took a walking tour of Belfast. Another day, they joined the funeral march for an IRA volunteer. RTE filmed Martin Galvin helping to carry the casket. Police vehicles were also ahead of the procession and following behind it, but black taxis had prevented them from coming close to the crowd, who included members of the visiting Norade delegation. As the pallbearers were changed, Martin Galvin appeared at the front of the coffin, along with Martin McGuinness and Danny Morrison of Sinn Féin, to the delight of the crowd. As it turns out, the FBI wasn't the only intelligence agency running spies in Norad. In 1988, Sinn Féin's Foreign Affairs Department sent a new guy to work in Irish Northern Aid. His name was Dennis Donaldson. This is Ed Maloney again. Dennis was a very, very early recruit, and he was 18 or 19 in 1970 when you had that siege of St. Matthews in East Belfast. This was a gunfight that took place in late June 1970. Loyalists began attacking a church in a Catholic neighborhood, and a small group of provisionals fought them off. It was the first major action conducted by the provosts, and their success became legendary, even mythological. And Donaldson was a part of it. So he was involved very, very early on, you know. And uh, obviously, you know, when this is at a time when the IRA is still quite small, so in a small organization, you tend to rise faster, you know. He also did time in prison and was a friend of Bobby Sands. In fact, the most famous image of Sands, the one that's painted on the side of the Sinn Féin headquarters, shows him smiling broadly. He's wearing this red sweater and a white collared shirt underneath. In the original photo that the mural is based on, Dennis Donaldson is standing just next to him, his arm draped over Sands' shoulder. It was quite a pedigree. Later on, he was sent to the Middle East and negotiated on behalf of Sinn Féin abroad. But when he arrived in the States, he started raising some suspicions, especially with Martin Galvin. We used to assume that people would, if you call from the office, your phone message would be tapped. Dennis used his own name. It was somebody who'd been in jail, shouldn't have been allowed a visa. He was able to say things, do things that nobody else could do. We were planning on having a 10th anniversary of the 1981 hunger strike. I mean, he was started to undermine the people who were in that. People who were very strong supporters of Irish Northern Aid, he did a lot to create dissension and undermine them. Eventually, Donaldson went back to Ireland. He was part of Jerry Adams' inner circle. He worked for Sinn Féin during and after the peace process, up until 2005. But in December of that year, details from a police raid and investigation, which was called Stormont Gate, were about to spill out into the public sphere. A few years earlier, Sinn Féin was accused of running a spy ring inside the Northern Ireland Assembly, and the police, very publicly, had raided their offices. The investigation took years, but it eventually led back to Dennis Donaldson. On December 16th, he called a press conference. My name is Dennis Donaldson. I worked as the Sinn Féin Assembly Group Administrator in Parliament buildings at the time of the PSNI raid on the Sinn Féin offices in October 2002, the so-called Stormont Gate affair. I was a British agent at the time. I was recruited in the 1980s after, particularly after compromising myself during a vulnerable time in my life. Since then, I have worked for British intelligence and the RUC PSNI special branch. I apologize to anyone who has suffered as a result of my activities, as well as to my former comrades, and especially to my family who have become victims in all of this. A year later, he was found dead in a small cottage, murdered with a shotgun at point blank range. 
The real IRA, another dissident Republican group that was formed in the 1990s, claimed responsibility for the attack. And some arrests were made, but no one has ever been successfully prosecuted for the murder. Donaldson wasn't the only high-ranking informant in Sinn Féin, but the access he had to the top levels of the party was extraordinary. Because of this, many people have speculated that his role went beyond just informing, that he used his position to shape Sinn Féin policy and push pro-British objectives, that he was an agent of influence. This raises some questions about Donaldson's role in the United States. If he really was sent to undermine Martin Galvin and Norade, he came at the right time. A new, respectable organization called the Friends of Sinn Féin was in the works. It was going to take over fundraising, lobbying, and political education from Norade, leaving the old diehards like Martin Galvin out in the cold. If Donaldson was sent to help that process along, it shows just how important Irish Northern Aid was to the British intelligence services he was working for. The war continued in Ireland and the UK, but each IRA attack seemed to lose Norad's support and members. They never stopped denouncing the British and defending IRA actions, but they could see that if they were going to have a future, it would mean taking their engagement with the American political system to a higher level. Norad's whole image had to change. It meant moving out of Irish bars and into the halls of Congress. And maybe even the Oval Office. In the next episode, the IRA's long war comes to an end. And we'll take a look at some financial documents that suggest that Irish Northern Aid may have helped them out on one last operation. This podcast is called Foreign Agent. It was created by me, Nate Levy, and my co-producer, Michael McCann. It's distributed by Navarra Media, and music is by Matt Huxley. The interview with Michael Flannery is courtesy of the Tamament Library at New York University. While researching this episode, we relied heavily on Irish America and the Ulster Conflict by Andrew Wilson, as well as Ed Maloney's article on the FBI surveillance of NORAID called The Battalion of Spies. It's available at thebrokenelbow.com. Robert Collins' new book is called NORAID and the Northern Ireland Troubles, 1970 to 1994.